I'm Billy. I'm Drew. And this is Pilot Club, episode 32. Welcome. Uh-huh. Thank you. I-, I was welcoming the audience. Oh, But yeah, okay. you're, you're, you're oh. welcome. You're welcome to. You're, <laughs> you're welcome, welcome to. Me? Okay. Yeah, okay. no, no, you're welcome. Yeah, the welcome is implied for you. <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. Nice. In- implicit. Implicit welcome. Um, Politeness makes the work around, Billy. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, let's let's kick things off. Uh, first series this week. Well, we've got a stacked cast. We've got a great cast. This week, well, so... We're stacked. It's stacked in terms of the, in the, terms of the, the profile. The yes. profile and prestige of the, the, the sh- new releases this the show, week. The showrunners. Yeah, have been quite quite yeah, significant. Yeah, yeah I, the pedigree of the showrunners, certainly. Yes. And the pedigree of the stars as yeah, well. Yeah, that's true. Here. Mm. So our first our first TV show certainly exemplifies that. Mm. It is Mayor of Easttown, uh, which has just recently been released globally mm. um, through HBO and in Australia through... Uh, Foxtel through Binge mm. in particular. Um, this has obviously got quite a lot of critical acclaim mm. as well as a warm, a warm response from audiences. Mm. So I was very intrigued to see this and see what mm. what the fuss was all about. Mm. So just to quickly step you through it, mm. I, was, I was quite intrigued about the actual title of this. So yeah. the title <laughs> is, um, I, I was talking, am I checking my spelling correctly? Is I thought it was M-A-Y-O-R mm. of Easttown, but I think this is an elaborate pun on that and uh, Mare is actually the the protagonist's name and she plays a uh, small town detective she she's a detective in the small Pennsylvania town East Town I think that um Kate Winslet who plays Mare has amazing pen face in this <laughs> she she's, does she's really mastered her pen face <laughs> she has she has uh, so it's a crime drama uh, miniseries and it basically charts her investigation of a series of, well, at least one missing girl mm. who, when the series opens, has been missing for a year. Mm. She has a bit of a disreputable background. Mm. And in some ways, she thinks she's maybe exhausted this investigation. And she and feels she feels pretty disillusioned with the police force as well. That's right. Generally. Like that's she's... right. She has a good critical distance yeah, from, yeah. from public institutions generally yep. and private ones as well, including yep. her marriage. Yep. So she... Something happens in this pilot that maybe leads her to believe that this disappearance that occurred a year ago might actually be linked to an ongoing yeah, and can series we, of events. Can we say without giving away specifics, there's a couple of overlapping crime narratives, right? There's a girl who vanished a year ago yeah. whose mother is still badgering, the not badgering, but still advocating the police force to yes. continue investigating. There is a murder in this first episode. Yes. And there's also a Peeping Tom, a series of a prowler. Yes. So those, there's kind of, it's like a triangulated crime narrative and you're not, you're not quite sure yet if those three things are all going to relate or not. No. Um, just on the name, I think that mayor is such an American abbreviation. So, you know, we've been watching the Mary Tyler Moore show recently and she's always abbreviated to Mayor. Oh, so and Mayor comes from Mary. Mary. Oh. I think, and on Curb Your Enthusiasm, Larry David is often called Lar by his friends, oh, L-A-R-E. Right, so okay. I think it's because the American accent is so rotic, the R is so pronounced. Right. They can say that in good a way. Rotic. Good rotic. Good rotic. Good rotic. Good scrimshaw. Yeah, good scrimshaw. Because <laughs> if, if as an Australian you try and say Mayor or Lar, it's kind of hard to say. That's true. It's an awkward thing to say. Yeah. But for Americans... This, this northeastern uh, inflection. Exactly. The accent. And this is, a, this is a show that's very much embedded in that northeastern so style community we were saying in some this ways. Is, and look, I'm... 
Carl came up with this, so I'm not going to take credit, but he said, Carl's been watching it, he said, this is like mid-Atlantic realism. Mm. So it's like shows, or mid-Atlantic naturalism. So mm. it, it recalls shows like Escape at Dannemora, um, a move movies like Manchester by the Sea. Yeah. Is that gritty, wintry, mm. austere kind of realism or naturalism to it? I think as well it's working class characters. Re- yes, Reminding me a lot of the David O. Russell films as yes, well. Yes, massively. Um, the massively. crime dramas, in particular The Fighter. Yes. Uh, that particular kind of regionalism. Yep. And this this movie is really trafficking in that kind of regional identity I, in some ways. Do you think Kate Winslet pulls off the accent? Well, she's got the pen face. <laughs> Does she pull off the pen accent? I think there's something about her scenery chewing turn that yes. works here. Yeah, I'll, and I'll, maybe the accent isn't flawless, and maybe it's a bit of an artifice. But there's something about the general demeanor of her character yes. that her this this kind of quite put on accent works yep. in some ways. I was going to say. Um, it's one of those cases where, like, an imperfect accent is actually way more enjoyable than a realistic accent ever would be. Yes. And the accent, it sounds like the accent, the pen accent, is it sounds a little bit English in some ways anyway. So she... Or, or does it? Or is she just, is she <laughs> She's just, true to type. <laughs> is she just doing a generic working-class American accent? I, I, I think she... I don't know whether she's nailed it. In yeah. fact, I'm pretty sure she hasn't. <laughs> yeah. But she is, she is someone who's been, I think, acclaimed for her... Her accents in the past. She did yes. a very, very convincing Australian accent. That's true. And in a couple of different movies as well. Yeah. So I think she's been mm. she's been lauded for that. Yeah. I don't know whether she's quite pulled this off, but I think the effort is all here. Yeah, and it's it's kind of one of the things where you know even if the accent doesn't entirely work, it doesn't take you out of the show. No. It kind of adds to it. No. Like it it, it amplifies the character. No. So I think mm. I think one thing that's really notable about this is how much of a character piece it is. Oh, ma- absolutely. So. Yeah. You know, and that's something that surprised me in a really good way. I mean, the crime doesn't come in until the last five minutes. No. And, and even before... Well, it's sort of woven well, in. Well, it's... Exactly. It's, wo- it's woven into the fabric of everyday life. It's woven, yeah. So, exactly. So, yeah. So, that's not the... Yeah. So, but the hook. Yes. The hook doesn't, the hook doesn't really come, come in. I mean, what I liked about it is the texture is so incredible. So, yes. it, it's like it establishes all the texture that will make the crime resonate. Yes. And, yeah, of course, you know, the, the prowler narrative is there, the vanishing or, the, you know, the disappearance narrative is there. So, the, the criminal kind of substrate is there. But for the most part, it just does kind of establish texture and establish character. Yes. In, in a far more immersive and kind of ambient way that I was expecting. And it just, it drew me right in. I felt so, it, it felt like an older period of television, like an mm. older, a kind of show that was content to do immersive character and an immersive sense of place and an immersive sense of texture without having to continually remind you how high concept it was. Yes. It was I think really this, accomplished, yeah. I thought, in that sense. I, look, I think this pilot treads a really, really fine line mm. and that is between those pilots where it is entirely character-based and nothing yep. happens mm. and those pilots where you said in the past everything happens. Yes. They're in a race to engage the mm. audience. They're concerned the audience is going to be mm. turning on their phones every, every five minutes mm. in case unless something, something happens here. Mm. Here, like you say, the fact that it's embedded in a local community, embedded in a series of mm. characters, it's not clear who's going to be the victim here as well. No. So it's quite shocking when one of the one of the main characters you think, and you're not actually even sure yes. entirely what, what relationship these characters have with each other, in a good way, mm. I should say, not in an opaque, uh, obviously uh. Um, contorted way, mm. but... It, it does give the crime here real stakes, and even though, even though, in some respects, the actual the way this ends is a little bit of a cliche, because you've come to know the characters and you know the community here, mm. and you know that this is possibly a failure on her part mm. as well. 
that you, it does really resonate that final yeah. that final scene. And I thought that final shot, you know, the, the shot of Kate Winslet, I just found it so poised. Like it was like watching a pilot where, I mean, the best kind of pilot where the sprawl is managed such that everything comes together in the final moment mm. or the final image, but without quite resolving everything either. Yes. I mean, I, I mean, something else I liked about it too was, you know, sometimes that kind of mid-Atlantic realism, uh, as I'm now going to call it forever, um, it can be a bit dour or mm. a bit drab, but Kate Winslet's character has such a, like, dynamic interaction with everyone she meets. Yes. I, I thought she had great butch energy. She did. So, she she's, did. <laughs> so she's kind of... She, she's, she's a basketball champion... Um, that's part of the story. She was a basketball champion in the town 20 years ago. It, the pilot takes place as the 20th anniversary of a basketball game that she won is being celebrated. And this pilot is, in fact, called Miss Lady Hawk herself. Miss Lady Hawk which herself. Which is a reference to her heroics the on basketball, basketball team. Court. Yeah, exactly. So she's a basketball player, not a netball player. Um, she wears flannel all the time. And puts it, her feet up on the dinner table. Puts her feet up on the dinner table. <laughs> and at the beginning of the episode, she's chasing a perp and hurts her foot. So for the whole kind of episode, she has this kind of lumbering, <laughs> masculine yeah. you know you know kind of lumberjack kind of gait so mm. you know, her interaction with Guy Pierce is a very is very I think very it's alpha. like a gender flipped yes uh, exactly. seduction in exactly. some ways and certainly the way that that one night stand resolves itself is yep. very much uh, I suppose the genders the genders are yeah. particularly flipped in that in that particular way I wonder whether you know in another time and place before there was such a plethora of you know representation options, she would have become a kind of lesbian cult figure. Yeah, like this. I mean, I know she's not a lesbian in the show, but she has just there's such a kind of camp butch swagger to Definitely. the way she carries herself, which is well, it's really enjoyable I to think watch. That's great. It's it's re- I think it's quite a unique character in a mm. sense that you see someone who's portrayed as such as such kind of salt of the earth mm. kind of masculine type mm. you know energy that she has, but mm. but she's still able to be seductive and she still is able to hold her own and also in her you know in a i suppose lots of different contexts both masculine and feminine yeah so. and you know so there's such a trend in especially contemporary quality television towards a kind of self-serious authenticity yeah which she, her character could so easily fall into but just something about the way she careens from person to person and i get guess kate winslet's almost comic timing prevents it ever feeling self-serious in that way. Like That's right. I it's, don't know, it really works as a character study. The series has a generally great sense of offbeat humour yeah. at every at every moment, including mm. even classic sort of iconic uh, detective scenes or mm. crime scenes mm. where she's in pursuit of a perpetrator mm. and the perpetrator cuts his hand mm. and her detective offsider who's... Uh, it's his first day on the job uh. and he sees the, the blood running and he starts throwing up and she says, well, look, you know, this is part of the job. But it's it's a li- nice little and offbeat way of undercutting the seriousness of, or at least the cliche of that sort of scene. Absolutely. And that something you've kind of reminded me of there is that because the story is so emergent mm. and because the focus is so diffuse at first, it takes a while to figure out what kind of show it's going to be. Mm. And there are a few scenes that recalibrated things for me. So that was one. So there's a scene where she she chases a perp into the house and immediately her officer starts fainting and there's this really intense look on his face. And I remember thinking, oh, something traumatic is about to happen here. There's going to be some incredible crisis. But all, it's he's just scared of blood. So, yeah. uh, you know, the way it flips that expectation is great. Another scene that was like that is, you know, one of the subplots is this woman whose daughter went missing a year ago and is petitioning 
the police department to do something about it. And she also happens to be a member of the basketball team. Mm. And Kate Winslet has this, or Mayor, has this encounter with her while they're waiting to receive their 20-year award, where she kind of has a go at her. Mm. And she says, you're making the police department look bad. You know me. You know we're doing everything we can. And the fact that she kind of gets indignant at that moment instead of just being submissive or be, like the, the fact that she expresses her care for this woman and mm. her missing daughter by having a go at her and mm. so, like it's it's a really great yeah. moment that just prevents it being like mm. sententious i think as well the way the woman herself who was quite histrionic in the mm. news report mm. reacts to mayor as well yeah basically not she doesn't confront her she doesn't yell at her mm. there's a naturalism in the way she or Absolutely. at least a complexity a nuance in the way that she interacts with her yeah and, and maybe that's what it is like there's something about you know when naturalism is done right it makes you aware how conventional most stuff you see is. Like mm. there's a surprise to the characters. Mm. There's a spontaneity that almost makes it feel improvised at times. It's mm. so it's just so it's so damn watchable. Yeah. Every part of it is yeah. so and it it doesn't have I mean, I like Manchester by the Sea and Escape and Danamora, but it's got a perkiness, a lightness it does, on its it feet. Does, yeah. It's very peripatetic. Yeah. It's just it's always mere moving from place to place. Mm. I, I, Exploring I was, all the kind of uh, the interesting little neighbourhoods of East Town, and yes, you get a, you get a really strong sense of East Town itself as and, this kind of somewhat working class, maybe slightly hard scrabble town, but it's not it's not. Not the sort of town where it's a, you know it's a ghetto it's ghettoized. No, it's, it's not. It's not. It's, it's not like you know just voyeuristic you know poverty stuff. It's it's almost like it's about a decline middle class town yeah. or or a working class town that's fallen into hard times. Like it's. I mean, yeah, the sense of place is so great. The yards are such mm. a big thing. I mean, mm. you know, it starts with a shot. Yeah, scene where someone's looking out a window at the yard. The prowler appears across yards. Mm. Mare injures herself while chasing someone mm. across a yard. Mm. The huge blocks of land between properties mm. are a really big part of the, the fabric of it in a yeah. way that I sense will be developed yeah. further. And I think the, the slight, uh, I suppose, the aura of decay that surrounds this town yep. is done very subtly. Yes. And it's really only in the last couple of scenes where you see teenagers congregating in a that, particularly that's dilapidated an, part of the, that's an incredible of the scene. town that Beneath you really get a sense of maybe the, the depth to which this town has has sunk beneath the freeway. Uh, yeah, beneath the That's freeway. Really it's an amazing scene. little little scene, and just the way that final that final murder is played as well, and the ellipsis that is used as well, I well, think is it, really. It's effective. done really well because without giving too much away, I mean, you know, something I think this series does really well is brutality. Yes. Like although there, it does have this lightness on its feet, in the same way that the lightness on the feet prevents self seriousness. There's, a, there's an element to the brutality that's really shocking and never just feels like, you know, never again, never feels self-serious. And the way they do the final scene is to have a very brutal scene, which seems like the climax, which is then followed just by an ellipsis. Yes. So that, that, that combination of showing something very shocking, but then having an absence that's just as shocking works really well. But don't you think like it does brutality and grit? Yeah. It's almost like, I don't know. Like it's almost like the perkiness and the slight comedy is needed to prevent the brutality and grit just feeling cliched. That's right. It's a really good combination. And it does, in some ways, it does less. Like I think a show like um, the recent Clarice show, for example, mm. it didn't really have much of a sense of character or place, and instead it substituted no. for that with just the, the sheer graphic nature of the, the crimes. In some ways, I, mean, I think the crimes here are graphic, but yeah. I think Clarice, they're, they're just. They're, I suppose they're depicted in such a way 
that there's a subtlety to I mean, the way that they're I think, done. I think Clarice, to be fair, is going for a different thing. Like it's there's more of an interest there in the kind of exotic crime scene, you know, the the, the Silence of the Lambs, whereas this is more like the gritty crime yeah, scene. Yeah, but I think that substitutes atmosphere and character for just shock. I mean, and it does this this does not do that. I mean, maybe something like Defending Jacob is another. I mean, you know, this, yeah. this is this is always our counterpoint, but that's yeah. you know, grim. I mean, it's it's more upper class where it's set but there's the same kind of grimness yes whereas there's a similar drabness to it but and you know in reality you know people in these situations i'm sure they don't all walk around you know people in middle class or working class i mean i'm sure they don't all walk around in the same you know impossibly attractive on we and you know it's like chris <laughs> evans and Mitchell. Yeah. i mean it's something about the resilience of the characters in this show yes. that's so compelling yes they've you taken know. some hard knocks yeah that's for sure and they've they're kept not, going they're not just kind of empty moping vessels no. for middle class voyeurism like there's there's a perkiness and a resilience that makes mm. them so mm. endearing especially mayor yeah i'm i'm so <laughs> on board with with mayor well, there's, i think there's, a, there's definitely a three-dimensionality to these characters yep. which makes you realize the crime sort of happens just it almost feels like you've stumbled across this crime at the same time they have. Yes. You feel like you're you're past part of this kind of ensemble of great characters mm. who just happen to have stumbled into a crime movie well, in some ways. Part of part of the benefit of having, you know, a pilot that deals with sprawl so well is that it, it is genuinely unpredictable. Like there is mm. a real time element to it. So look, I think that's what I take away from this is this reiterates how difficult it is to create a pilot that is genuinely sprawling, that mm. genuinely has that expansive sense of place that is genuinely tonally complex, but still manages to wrap it up together at the end. So this to me is like, this has now replaced the undoing as my Monday night appointment viewing. It's, right. a, it's, it's a perfect... Because <laughs> I mean, we've talked yeah. in the podcast having about how sometimes the HBO and Fox shows take a while to drop on binge. And I'm mm. so glad this one's been released simultaneously because I... I'm so looking forward to doing yes. it every Monday night. I think this is also a show that really benefits from that that episodic release weekly viewing schedule. As much as I wanted to binge it, yes. I think marinating over it for yes. the, the next week it, will make it all the more it, precious when it does drop. It resonates. It's the scarcity of it. It's kind funny, of makes it special. Just as a side sidebar, a side observation. Um, something I've noticed recently is when I rewatch shows like Twin Peaks or I rewatch shows like, um, you know, even like The Wire or The, or the Sopranos. Stuff happens much earlier than I remembered it. Like stuff that mm. I thought of happening, you know, six or seven episodes in happens two episodes in. And I think that's because there was a time when we watched television in a more spaced out way. Mm. So the sense of duration between events was longer, even mm. if you're watching it, you know, not in real time. So like mm. I think this this is that kind of show. Like it, even I think if I was watching it sequentially, it would still evoke that older period of episodic viewing. Mm. Like it's... it. The way in which each episode forces mm. you to, re- yeah. I think this show, because it's because it feels like it's set in a real town with real characters, having that that sense of duration is actually gives it a, an ex, an extra layer of realism. Absolutely, as if you are experiencing this simultaneously with the characters Absolutely. and giving this series space to breathe. Absolutely. I think will actually and benefit just, your the and viewing just, experience and just resonate. And you know, there is something. There is something about the pleasure of returning to television yes. after a break. And this is the kind of show where it's so immersive and self-contained that to return to it, I think, will be really is a pleasure. happy. So I'm 100% on board with Mare. <laughs> I think I agree with you. I think, 
one of the dip, most difficult things that but we also saw as a the legacy of the golden age was a series that had a lot of incredibly interesting loose threads yes. as well as gradually coalescing into a narrative. And yes. I think we saw it especially with Big Love. So I was going to say, I think this is our strongest pilot since Big Love. This is... You know, this in is, terms of yeah. craft. In terms of craft, in terms of intrigue, mm. this is certainly the strongest pilot I've seen since Big Love. Yep. So hopefully, is this the dawn of the second golden age? Or the, or the fourth golden age. The fourth historically. golden age. I mean, and also, you know, in terms of hope, hope as well... I've read some reviewers say that its reach slightly exceeds its graphs, but I'm hopeful that that won't matter because the reach is part of what's mm. pleasurable about it. Well, I guess my fear, my one, my one reservation mm. here is that this might be a show a little bit like Sharp Objects. You see, I loved Sharp Objects. Even the resolution? I did, yeah. Okay, okay. I, loved- I thought Sharp obje- Objects became less and less engaging as it, went, as it became more melodramatic you as see, well. I, I, I just love the style of Sharp Objects. But look, we, we'll talk about Sharp okay, Objects okay, another time. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> that, could be, that could be good archive corner because I love that. Um, but yeah, look, I'm a hard in. Likewise. Okay, on to our second show this week. So this is another show that's got quite a lot of attention. It's, Absolutely. Um, it's big, big debut. Big debut. Oh, I shouldn't say debut, but a big, uh, a big name big event. is attached so, to this one. Um, this is the latest instalment in what I've been thinking of as Vi-Fi. Victorian science fiction. Well, this is there's incredible and uncanny similarities between this series and The Irregulars. The Irregulars, which we did a couple yeah. of weeks ago. So this series is, it's a Joss Whedon series. It's called The Nevers. So even the title recalls The Irregulars. The know. Nevers, The Irregulars. It's a Joss Whedon series. And I I guess it's his, it's his third big series after Buffy and... What was the series he did after Buffy? Firefly, was, I think it was. It was Firefly. There's another one that he did I think too. He did Agents of Shield or some Marvel. Yeah, so maybe products. there's others. There was one he did Dollhouse. So he did. Yeah. Anyway, he's done other series, but it's it's Joss Whedon's latest big series, mm. and it's it's the controversial a, Joss Whedon. Controversial Joss Whedon. Look, I have to admit from the outset. Sorry to our fans, I've never been a huge Joss Whedon fan. So, mm. I mean, look, I remember not loving Buffy at the time. I, I'd like to give it another go, but. For the most part... You've lost the weedonologist, Billy. I've lost the weedonologist. <laughs> For the most part, um, I don't know. Like, I find his style really kind of knowing. Arch. And really chirpy, really <laughs> arch. I mean, I, I don't want to, you know, this is not about Whedon generally, but just to say I'm not, I'm not the hugest, hugest fan. Um, anyway, this is, this is a historical series. It's set in Victorian England, and it's about a group of characters who start to develop supernatural powers mm. um especially women and who come to be known as the touched the touched yes. and it takes us through a small community of the touched all of whom are really different one girl mm. is a giant she's like you know 10 feet tall one girl speaks every language but can't seem to speak english and it's anchored in two characters who two female characters who both have their respective different powers. Mm. And in some ways... Most it, of them are orphans. Most of them are living orphans. In, living in an orphanage or a, or they've been, a home for misbegotten children. Or they've or, been rejected by their family yeah. and friends. So, you know, it treads a familiar path, I guess, in two ways. On the one hand, it's about a group of people who emerge with superpowers mm. and have to combine to form a provisional community. And on the other hand... It's got real shades of X-Men. It's about... It uses people with superpowers as an allegory for discrimination. So a lot of the drama is driven by the way in which contemporary Victorian commentators deal with the touched or try and pathologise the touched or in some cases even advocate exterminating the Mm. touched. So I have to confess to you that 
this is for me almost the hardest kind of pilot to get through. So, <laughs> well, this, it's a, it's a certainly ambitiously. Uh, it's ambitious at one hour, over well, one hour in length. It's over one. And this is so the kind of pilot that would be over one hour in length. Mm. So there's just something about this kind of science fiction Victoriana that for me is so turgid and so morose and almost like so done. Like I feel like what was there here that even differentiated this from the Irregulars? And that was just the most recent iteration of well, this I movie. That, I'm being a little bit harsh, mm, but... I'm, I'm, they I'm, seem to have dropped within a couple of months of each other. So I think this might have been a case of that kind of creative synergy where two people are independently on. devise an idea and then they just happen to be released at the same time. Yeah. So I don't think you can really say it's indebted to, not, to that not, in, no, no, in I, fairness. I, no, I'm not saying it's indebted to it. I'm saying that just, you know, the fact that it's so similar to it shows for me the kind of general paucity of this kind of imagination of this mode i mean i guess you know it's just personal but the kind of the science fiction or cyberpunk reinvention of british history it's just something that i feel is a bit done for me and this series i thought you know it had all the issues that i felt were there in the irregulars like i mean i thought it was better in some ways but it's very dense it's the action is really tedious it's full of like really twee English stuff. Like I got so friggin' sick of the umbrellas. The umbrellas and that stupid car they drove the whole time. That stupid car. I just was like, I just this is I cannot deal with this. Like, well, I think certainly like for me at least, narratively, this was one of the most incomprehensible pilots I've ever seen. Mm. I found it very difficult to differentiate one character from another. Mm. I found it so opaque, uh, in in a very flawed way that it made it very difficult for me to just comprehend what one character's relationship was to another. And and maybe that, that charts a kind of transition in Joss Whedon himself. I mean, one thing that Buffy does very well... Look, maybe I was a bit harsh on Buffy. I need to revisit it. But one thing that Buffy does very well is long-form narrative and narrative mm. experimentation. And, you know, there's a, there's a famous Buffy subplot, for example, where Buffy has a sibling all of a sudden. And fans got, you know, outrage. Have you heard about this? Like, I have not. So, no. so fans got outrage. They thought that the show had just been retconned. And then this, I think it was whatever the kind of late 90s equivalent of a hashtag was, you know, emerge on message boards, trust Joss. And it turned <laughs> out that this sibling that Buffy immediately had, you know, had at the beginning of a season, the season was actually to do with a plot device that was earlier later on. So, right, you know, right. there was a time when Whedon was definitely a master of long-form narrative. I don't think anyone would be saying that going forward. Trust Joss. <laughs> Trust Joss, no. Um, but I feel like post-Marvel, I mean, his style has pretty much become universe-building. Yes. Like world-building. And especially his contributions to the Marvel universe are the ones that I think are most world-building dependent. Yes. So, you know, the Avengers films are almost nothing but world-building. So yes. I think you have a kind of world-building aesthetic here. But outside of, say, the sustained fabric of something like the Marvel Universe, it's just totally incoherent. Yes. So it, it feels like this is like the Nevers extended <laughs> uni- universe, the, N- the NEU, not the MEU. But the NEU, it's so dense that, like, what are the stakes? Mm. Like, it doesn't work for a mm. long-form TV series, that level of density, does I think, it? I think it's a really interesting contrast. So I think we were saying that um, the mayor of Easttown had a lot of interesting loose threads that gradually coalesced into a yes. into a into a narrative. Yes. This is all loose threads. Absolutely. They never cohere. Absolutely. Or if they cohere, it's in a really bizarre way that just asks you and I'm talking about the final twist, mm. that really makes you ask further questions. But it's it's so diffuse narratively, mm. isn't it? I mean on the one hand we have a serial killer plot 
mm. where we have a detective investigating a mysterious serial killer, maybe Jack the Ripper-esque who's targeting mm. women. Mm. Uh, we have another plot involving the, the touched and their orphanage mm. in some ways. We have a, a third plot involving uh, Machiavellian mm. machinations of, of bureaucrats mm. and those in higher places dealing with the touched, but also mm. dealing with a separate level of intrigue. We have an interesting uh, character who appears to have like stumbled in from the Game of Thrones set. Yes, the uh, the character who's who's promiscuous and a mm. drug user, and we also have more friggin' crows as well. Like <laughs> lots, after the, lots I was crows. like, I was like, <laughs> well, I, it's all the crows. I was with, like, wow. with, with the irregulars, I was like, I thought. I thought I'd done. I, I was done with my like with the turgid discussions. This of wasn't crows. quite as crow centric. But but even the crow scene is so reminiscent. We talk about crows. We talk about the collective noun for crows. We see a flock of crows. Like yes. the imagery is so tired. Like yes. it's so. Well, this kind of uh, this this almost prince or aristocratic character is very similar in some ways from the irregulars as well. Absolutely, I mean, there's a real parallel there. I tell you the one bit of it I think did work. So I thought. You know, the action was really weak. The plotting was really weak. I thought in this context, in this Victorian context, Joss Whedon's kind of arch witticisms worked quite well. And I thought there was there was one scene where it worked really well, where you have like a conservative peer or someone like that at the opera and two prominent members of The Touched, and they kind of trade barbs mm. about whether The Touched should have equal rights or not. Mm. And he comes up with an argument, they come up with an argument, and there's kind of an English sense of witticism that's almost like Tom Stoppard or something. And, and at that moment, I thought that worked. If this series had was a kind of witty dialogue and repartee, that more knowing arch style of Joss Whedon's sensibility yeah. could work. So I thought... There were little flashes of dialogue that really worked, but then it just got bogged down in just either turgid spectacle or like really bad action. Yes. Just boring, yes. boring action. Yes, and CGI, I guess creating a period piece is a bit of a risk because yes. it means you can't use a lot of real sets. Exactly. Um, and the CGI here I found quite flimsy. So even on the world building yeah. front, although the production design was very beautiful. Yes, um, I agree. It the backgrounds, the backdrops just struck, you know, struck me as really artificial i could see right through it I... and unfortunately you know, in that context one of the main ways they they capture that science fiction element is often by having very stark contrast between naturalistic victorian streetscapes and the sky yes but because the sky is so palpably artificial it doesn't quite but no. do, do you know what i mean but like that i thought that dialogue scene or maybe just by comparison with it i thought that dialogue <laughs> scene was like that was quite interesting like well, it was it was I, I think that was that was kind of more what you come to expect from joss whedon because yeah. a lot of the other series was just quite leaden dialogue well that's true and you know in a way in the avengers like there are two main signatures he has right like just empty world building and arch witticism. I just, I guess, whereas I find that a bit irritating in the Avengers context, I thought in this kind of English historical context, it worked quite well. I thought his kind of his heightened archness worked well in kind of polite English society. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, I hear, I hear you. I, I, mean, hear I, I, you. I, I never, watch, I'm, I'm never watching it again. And, and I watched it in three twenty-minute instalments. That's how friggin' hard it was. I found very to get hard to get through. Let's take this with a grain of. I mean, also something else too, like, you know. A chase sequence is the laziest kind of action in this. Yes, like just, it was yes. just chase sequence after chase sequence. chase sequence. And it's just like in that yeah. that stupid I can't that yeah. stupid car. And it's just like you know, establish your world better than that. Yeah. Well, I think I think really Wi-Fi. It's it's not a fine. Fan, it's fine to, fine to go for the world building, but I think really the central problem 
with this pilot is the lack of character development, Certainly. especially the two main characters. So the two main characters are uh, Amalia True, on oh. my pilot, and her friend Penance Adair, mm. and. They're, like spend less time on the names, yes, more time on the characters. You you learn very little about them. They're really paper thin. The characterization they look very similar too. Mm-hmm. So there's not a clear sense of distinction between the characters, and, and their dialogue is is very dull. And this makes me wonder. I mean, how I don't it, even really know what their relationship no, is, or what they're doing. Me neither. So how is this meant to be watched? Like I had two two options. That is it something people are watching on phones or iPads intermittently, or is it the kind of thing where if you're a Whedonologist or a Whedonhead you know you're going to be all in from the very first couple of minutes. Like, it, I don't get what how this pilot could possibly draw in a viewer who was on the fence or, no. a, or a disinterested viewer. No, no. And I think that's, that's very telling because part of me wondered, who is this for? Mm. I found, it, I found the, the target audience for this quite perplexing. Mm. So I thought, well, it can't be for young adults viewers like the irregulars mm. i thought the irregulars for all its flaws was fairly effective at mm. catering to that young adult mm. audience it had relatable characters mm. it had fairly suspenseful narrative mm. development this didn't have any of that i mean i wondered if it was like a, a politics of visibility thing so for young women especially and you know teenage girls the show was more about you know someone once said to me that like sex in the city even though the content is noxious there was something about the sheer posture and haptics and body language the strut of the women that was empowering above and beyond content i mean is this like that where it will draw in teenage girls who you know to be fair often don't don't see this kind of representation as much as teenage boys and that's the hook but even so you'd think it's it is so narratively incoherent yeah can that sustain and just the I like mean, it's about visibility yeah. more than character or more than but at the same time when are teenage girls even those who are interested in visibility are they going to be engaged by a 20 minute scene involving uh, middle-aged men sitting around a shadowy desk yes. talking about uh, exactly. victorian politics exactly i thought as well like it's too ridiculous um in its narrative contortions to appeal to adult viewers as well so do you think yeah so exactly so this is i think this is a kind of pilot who is this for i mean maybe from now on we should call this the never form of pilot i mean it's a kind of pilot that doesn't seem to have an audience no beyond whedon himself but even i think even whedonologists would be really thoroughly disappointed by this because it doesn't deliver what that name promises at all it's like world building without a universe to support it and while he directed this i know that he was ousted as showrunner after the the controversy emerged about his mistreatment of actors on sets as well. So I don't even know whether you can really attribute this as being entirely mm. a weed and peace, but it certainly it certainly is a is a bizarre series that yes. for me didn't work at all. And I'm glad to say here you felt the same way because this, like I said, I've watched this in three 20 minute installments. Like <laughs> I, I watched it in one hour and yeah. one hour installment, and I was dipping in and out of I, consciousness. I'll be no, honest. I, I struggled to get my way through it just because. Yeah. So look, I think for me. Will I be watching this one again? Never. <laughs> I'm well, a hard I think, out. I think we are. We are the nevers on this we because are the I nevers. am also never. We are the never nevers. Never again. Never again, Billy. All right. So on to our next series, Billy. And guess what? True crime. It's true crime, baby. And i got to say, one of my favourite <laughs> subgenres of true crime, art theft or oh, art forgery. Okay. Well, the heist. The heist is always very interesting. The heist as well. And this is a heist, obviously, um, of art. So mm. I think there's a couple of interesting uh, confluence of, mm. of subject matter here. So this one's called This is a Robbery, subtitle, 
the world's biggest art heist. And, and I knew nothing about this crime. Had you ever I, heard of it? No, I had never heard of it. Mm. I had never heard of it. Um, as a fan of heists, a fan of true crime, mm. I was quite pleasantly surprised. Um, it tells the story of the 1980 art heist. I think 1990. Oh, my apologies. 1990. 1990 yep. art heist of a Boston's Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. Mm. Had you heard of this museum? I hadn't, no. Okay. But it, I've... I, it reminded me of another... I, I, yeah, there's something interesting about the museum I'll talk to you about in a moment, yeah. Okay, sure. Mm. So this really pilot really sets the scene for it. It really starts almost by describing the uniqueness of this particular museum, mm. which seems like a pretty incredible space mm. in and of itself. And then we quickly uh, flash forward to the, the robbery itself. So a number mm. of paintings were stolen. Um, some of these paintings were incredibly well-known and, and mm. famous, including... A Rembrandt and Rembrandt's only depiction of a seascape. Uh, Rembrandt's only seascape in existence, in yeah. some ways. So you learn a couple of skeletal details about the mm. about the robbery, which are largely public knowledge, mm. including the fact that an eyewitness placed two two people wearing police uniforms in a mm. car outside mm. the the Gardner Museum just before the heist. Mm. You learn that the thieves spent eighty one minutes. Mm. In the Gardner Museum. And, and something that's incredible is that's apparently very long for a heist. Yeah. But, you know, they still got away by like one thirty or 2 in the morning. If they'd stayed all night, as they could have, they could have taken out this entire collection. Yes. I mean, the scale of the scale of this art theft. Yes. Because it's not, it's not a big collection. Well, they took 13. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But given, the scale, given that it's a small collection, you know, the scale of what they took is remarkable. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, yeah, uh, largely, really, that's... That's about it. Like they, they sort of feed you information here mm. throughout this this documentary in drips, which I think works. It's maybe worth saying just a couple of other quirks. Um, firstly, they cut the paintings out of their frames, which apparently is quite a time-consuming thing to mm. do. And secondly, I didn't know this, even in 1990... It'd be a high-pressure manoeuvre, cutting that Rembrandt out. High-pressure <laughs> manoeuvre. Um, and also, apparently, even in 1990 they had some kind of computerised system where you could tell who'd entered, when, when someone had entered a gallery and when someone had, had, had approached a painting. Mm. Um, so there's one painting that's in a separate room that hadn't been accessed since earlier in the evening, creating speculation, might have been an inside job. And maybe the final thing I should say is that, you know, they took some really big paintings, but there is a little bit of speculation as to why those and why not others. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah I think... I think in terms of just the intrigue this mm. builds is is very effective in some ways. So there's there's a sense of there's a sense of a shadowy conspiracy mm. in some ways. Have you watched any more by the way? I have not. No, me neither. Okay. I yeah. have not. And I think sometimes Netflix they, they, they throw in a few deliberate red herrings yes. in some ways. And I guess that's one of my concerns here. But the way they at least frame this this mm. art heist is as part of a larger shadowy conspiracy and network look, that might be transcontinental, that might involve the mafia, that might involve... Organised crime. Co- Organised I mean, crime and, look, and they, outside actors. They do have one red herring here, but it kind of really works. So they talk about, you know, this took place in Boston, and they talk about a heist that happened a year or two earlier in Yarmouth, Massachusetts, and mm. there are some uncanny similarities in how the paintings were taken. And the paintings in this case were taken from a small private collection with a maritime focus. So that Mm. links up with the Rembrandt seascape. It turns out the person who took those was a man who's considered the greatest art thief in United States history. And although he was in jail at the time, the Boston stuff was taken, it still resonates Mm. really well. 
I, I watched this pilot in a really evocative way for it. So it was um, about a week ago. I went to bed about 10.30 and I couldn't sleep. So I got up about midnight to watch something and I watched this. And for a pilot that is so much about what happens over one night yeah. in an empty building, it was such a great way to watch it. So, so uh, something I loved about this was the testimony of the security guards. Yes. So it because it's such a small collection, it really captures that intimate relationship that the security guards have with the paintings mm. and that the curator has with the paintings mm. and how traumatic it makes that for them to be to be stolen mm. and that it, it res- that trauma also resonated with me i guess due to an art gallery experience i had in the states a couple of years ago i was in new york and i went to on over two days i went to the frick and to the cloisters have you ever been to either of those galleries in no. new york so the Frick is really different from most other art galleries. It's it's a private residence of on you know, uh, Fifth Avenue, I think, on Central Park, that was designed as a personal art gallery, which means that all the paintings there are in situ, like they're in a house, they're arranged in a house. And the Cloisters is like that too. It's a medieval structure that was transplanted from Europe and all the paintings and artworks are in situ. So this is that kind of gallery. I'd never been to a gallery like that before, and it was so much more powerful to see paintings exhibited in a personal space mm. rather than like a cold white cube. Mm. So this something that the opening of this does really well is to paint the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum as someone's house, first yes. and foremost, that was bequeathed to art, which means that all the paintings there, it's not like it's a rotating exhibition, or an impersonal space. All the paintings are integral parts of the structure. Yeah, so for the, I love that that stipulation she put in her will that yes, nothing could be changed. Nothing could be changed. Otherwise, they'd forfeit the whole collection and it'd be liquidated, and then the proceeds would go to Harvard University. Absolutely. So amazing. So the kind of, I mean, just like like the freak. I mean, it, it was so powerful to see artworks in that kind of personal space. Mm. So removing them. Yeah, and, and the woman who was in charge of the collection only just taken on the job. Yes. So you can see the real trauma for her of having it removed. So I, I love the way that the opening, say, 20 minutes, painted the collection as you know, this synergy between building and art. Mm. So to remove the art was like taking the heart. It was, it was such That's a right. violent thing to do. There's something really interesting, I think, about the, the parallel between the architecture of this house mm. and the way that it enabled this crime to occur yes. in some ways. Yes. So, the house was built to approximate a Renaissance yes. um, mansion or mm. a Renaissance uh, mm. villa or palace in some ways. I love that courtyard. Yes, that's right. Yep. So from the outside, it looks like basically a fortress or it looks mm. very nondescript. Um, but in the inside, it's structured around a central courtyard of uh. you know, peace and tranquility and beautiful a beautiful little garden. Mm. So it's a very inward-facing building. Mm. And in some ways, the... The, the new uh, manager who t- took, took over said, oh, this actually meant that the, the museum was not interacting with the community. Mm, it was too inward-facing. It was too inward-facing, yeah. not outward-facing the community. In some ways, I think the inward-facing nature of this building, the almost fortified exterior, mm. um, allowed, I suppose, these thieves, um, I suppose, the, the space um, they needed to actually well, I mean, orchestrate this once heist. They, once they were in there, they were really in. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it seems like an incredible building. It mm. gave me a really strong desire to visit this museum in a particular way. And this was something, you know, not to keep bringing it back to the freak, but this was, <laughs> you know, by analogy, there's something about being in an art gallery where the space is as much of an event mm. as the artwork. And you get that in some contemporary galleries. I mean... But, you know, in, in, in a residence that was built for the purpose historically, it's so powerful. I mean, yeah, and on that note, like something I liked about this was 
the analogies with other kinds of true crime. So it was almost like the paintings became missing persons. Yes, that's right. But also, you know how something that's so powerful in true crime, as you said, is the near misses? Yes. Like the woman who doesn't get into Ted Bundy's bug. I mean, there were so many paintings that were near misses. Yes. Like the Rembrandt, they took down the self-portrait, they took down from the wall, but never got time to take out of its frame. Like... There was such a sense of, you know, the paintings they passed mm. over were fascinating. Mm. And something I'm, I'm always really intrigued by, and I hope this series explores, is how, they, how the thieves who actually take these pieces end up making money from it. Because yeah. they, they're so, um, they're priceless works, they're so distinctive. I mean, mm. this Rembrandt is, you know, one of his most famous paintings Absolutely. in some ways. So how on earth would they be able to liquidate that and actually abscond with all this money it's something they kind of speculate isn't it well they, they must be in some private collection so like yeah and uh, private collectors are they is a thief the collector themselves or have they yeah. have they been commissioned by a th- to, so, to steal this and here's something that i didn't find plausible so they had this quite dismissive kind of scotland yard expert who was the head of art forgery for years and he said that he didn't think they'd been commissioned because if there was a million dollar award, well, why wouldn't they just give it up? You know. And he said, well, I thought the obvious. I thought the obvious answer was, well, maybe they were paid more than a million dollars. Yeah. But yeah, like it. It's so strange to think that those paintings are still out there somewhere in someone's collection. Yes. Yes. You know, or maybe they're sitting in a in a dusty in a storage vault somewhere. So I I actually haven't done much research into this no, crime. Have you? I deliberately didn't look into it. No, I, 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 I deliberately. Was so intrigued yeah, I deliberately I withheld. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Looking at any further information because I wanted to see how this narrative played out and just mm. just ride the wave of these of these twists and turns in this as well. I think one other thing that I think is quite notable here, in in the vein of the mid Atlantic naturalism. Mm of uh, the mayor of Easttown. Yep. In some ways, this has a real New England feel. Absolutely. And I think there's something really evocative and symptomatic in some ways of this crime that it occurred on St. Patrick's Day in Boston. I agree. Well, How has this not been made into a movie I agree. starring Ben Affleck? I agree. Well, <laughs> hopefully not Ben Affleck, but I agree. I mean, there is something, there is a kind of American Gothic to it all, isn't it mm. there? Like the Renaissance structure the Boston backdrop. I mm. mean, you, you can see the scene in the movie where the detective takes an evocative trip out to Yarmouth yes. to put the pieces together. Yes. Yarmouth sounds very New England. The, yeah. So Real I, New England. I, I see, My understanding that Yarmouth was kind of on the way to Cape... It's on yeah, Cape it's Cod. Yeah, it's on the, on the, the muscle on, of on that the peninsula. kind of that flexed arm of yeah. Cape Cod. So that, that's, that's a scene in the movie where it's like, oh, something similar happened here two years before on a smaller scale... <laughs> But with some, yeah, that was so, uh, yeah, and interesting that that was a bit of a dead end. That part of the investigation, or was, or was it? it? Or yeah. was it? You know, like yeah. it was. It was really. I yeah. mean, you know, two major art heists, two years apart, like a hundred miles apart. Yes, that's that's a bit of a coincidence. Yes, and even though they discount this art thief who was in prison at the time. Yeah. How do you think, well, maybe he had an accomplice in some had, ways yeah. or had a connection and he commissioned the connection I liked, to do um, it? I liked how frank he was about stealing art too. Yeah, it was almost like a sport. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think there's a really great scene um, where one of the, the police detectives talks talks about this um, mm. this famous art thief. I think it was Miles something. Mm. And he said, oh, you know, his his brother was a priest. Mm. Another, His father was a, was a doctor mm. and his half-brother was a lawyer. Mm. And he always said, and he was a career criminal, and yeah. he said, where did they go wrong? <laughs> <laughs> so it's got a lot of good sort of New England, yeah. uh, larrakin type wit. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, I, it, it feels very regional yeah. in yeah. a sense, even though this the ramifications of this, this heist might be 
you know, global I in agree. some ways. It, and it, it does capture that, that strangeness of art collection where a painting becomes so embedded in a particular place, even though it comes from a completely different context. Yeah. You know, so, and yeah, the point of connection was the Rembrandt seascape. Yeah. That's the kind of nexus between his world and this New England world. Yeah. yeah. In some ways, that's like a kind of the, the motif. Yes. In some ways, connected yes. it symbolically to, to Yarmouth in some ways. There was, there was a lot of kind of visual, visual language. A lot of scrimshaw. A lot of scrimshaw as well. Yeah. Incredible artwork. But, but was again, the scrimshaw stolen from the... From the Yarmouth place. From the Yarmouth place. But, but again... 200 pieces of scrimshaw. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's good scrimshaw. <laughs> but again, quite an eerie resonance. Like someone targets yeah. a museum in Yarmouth that has primarily maritime mm. artefacts and then steals a seascape. A, nauti- a collector with a particular nautical a, bent. A nautical bent, exactly. Yes. Yeah, so for me, at least, I'm always a bit concerned when I watch true crime that doesn't involve homicide in some ways or or disappearances and a disappearing person. But disappearing paintings, when they're so famous, in some ways do supplement for And also when they're so personally embedded in the collection and so personally critical to the people who work there that they almost have that personality. That's right. I love this. I I mean, you know, the other thing about an art heist is no one gets hurt. No, right. that's true. So it, it, that's true. The, it, the, the criminals have a kind of flamboyance. Yes. They take ownership of their crimes in yes. a way that maybe a, cura- a serial killer could never. No, exactly. So, look, I mean, I love that it. it's a perfect show to watch after midnight. It's a comforting show. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I, want to, I want to see the fictional version. I want to see that, you know, side scene in Yarmouth. You want to see the Affleck, the Affleck joint? No, I don't, I don't <laughs> want to. I, I don't want to. I, I, I mean, I don't want any of... Affleck's mass hole <laughs> anywhere near it uh, the town too <laughs> um, but you know I thought it was great I'm a hard in likewise okay on to this week's archive tro- uh, archive corner mm. so this week we're doing the first season of American Horror Story yeah Murder House and we're treating each season of American Horror Story or American Crime Story or any other fully anthologized series like this as a separate pilot. So, I think that's I think that's fair. And I, I'm curious to come back to the others. Actually, maybe I'll do them <laughs> in the next couple of weeks in sequence. But look, um, 2021, the year of American Horror Story. Exactly. And speaking of years, I was thinking that this is one of the ultimate 2010s television series. So interesting. It Murder House came out in 2011, um, presumably shot in 2010. And from that point onwards, there was a new instalment of American Horror Story pretty much every year. Um, what season out. are they up to now? I think they're up to season 10, but I feel like we're now in the period of late American Horror Story. Right, so okay. The, the, or maybe season 9. The next one coming out is called Double Feature, right. and it's basically two different stories that I think may not even interact. It's like a two, two-parter. So okay. that fragmentation suggests to me that we've we've left the classic phase have you heard who's in the latest season no they've chosen an actor because you know you know how ryan murphy has a type yes they've chosen adult macaulay culkin oh, who i think will okay. work perfectly <laughs> in this series so okay, that could work so this series to me is is synonymous with the televisual texture of the 2010s it was always at video at dvd stores mm. it was always you know like something you would see in big dvd box sets and it has now become a staple on streaming services as well. It's really designed for the DVD market in some ways. Absolutely. A self-contained 10-episode... Is it 10-episode series? But also very collectible. Yes. And it also has a rich intratextual life as well. So there are resonances between series. There's also a a cast of regulars on the show, like Sarah Paulson and Jessica Lange, several of whom became 
really well-known generally through the show, like Sarah Paulson, or got a second wind in their careers, like Jessica Lange, right. through the show. So it's it's a rich, intratextual universe. As you've said, it's it's kind of... It was pitched as a collectible DVD object, and it's a new one released every year. So Interesting. It's, it's a almost real... like a cast of repertory players in some ways. Absolutely, mm. absolutely. So A theatre troupe. A theatre troupe. A horror troupe. Absolutely, and, <laughs> and very much so, because, you know, I've only seen it here and there, um, to be honest, but a lot of the seasons focus on the troupe as a kind of motif, mm. like as a, as a focus on carnival, mm. grotesque. There's almost a kind of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Not cabaret, not striptease. Um, what's the word for... It'll come to me. There's, yeah, it's almost like a kind of a cabaret theatrical yes. um, circus-like <laughs> element you could, to you it. You could go and see like a American Horror Story dinner show in some ways. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Um, so and there is an, indeed an entire series circus. Okay, There's an entire yes. series freak show. Yes. So that's that's the style it's, it's going for. Now, the first season we're doing probably in some ways has the most conventional horror premise. Yes. It's, a, it's a haunted house story. Yes. It's about a, an L.A. Victorian house um, that goes on the market is bought by a wealthy middle class couple, Dylan McDermott and um, Jessica Lang. It is Dylan, Dylan McDermott, right? Uh, Jessica Lang is the neighbour. Sorry, sorry um, Connie, Connie Britton. Yeah, Dylan McDermott and Connie Britton. Yeah. They're having problems in their marriage. Um, he's had an affair. He's also a therapist. They have a uh, disturbed daughter. Disturbed daughter, that's for sure. And the house has a history. Tessa Farmiga. Tessa Farmiga. Um, there's an old woman who lives nearby. Oh, sorry, old like a you know an old older woman. An attractive, mature lady, Billy. Exactly. Sorry. <laughs> and there's also a housekeeper played by Frances Conroy. So basically, the setup is a haunted house in this first episode. The style is so unusual, and I think mm. I think I'd almost describe this as a horror comedy. The way so a good. <laughs> A good way to describe it in miniature, I guess, is kind of the opening scene. So the opening scene um, involves two boys going to the house in the past and a girl with Down syndrome warning them not to. Yes. And they explore the house and they go downstairs. And I'm not saying this is a criticism because there's a lot that I liked about it, but just to give a sense of how unusual it is. There's almost no sense of suspense. No. And there's no... And space is never given a chance to kind of breathe on its no. own terms. There's continuous editing within the scene. Yes. There's there's so many jump cuts within scenes. I thought my streaming service was glitching. Did you feel that? <laughs> I This was a show I felt like I was watching on double speed. Double speed, exactly. So there's, there's that. And just... There's an incessant hyperactivity. So one of the kids going through the house is continually kind of letting off firecrackers. Yes. Um, the camera is continually moving. The camera is continually in motion. The overall effect is like vertiginous. And, yeah. the, and the vertigo score is quoted at the end. Right. So there's this hyperactive, hypermobile kind of glitchy aesthetic that means that the normal ingredient of horror films, traditionally space, doesn't really ramify. No, so not at all. There's a scene early on where um, Connie Britton's doctor compares her body to a house. Mm. The real estate agent compares this house to a child. So space and the body are completely linked. It's almost like no space can be extricated from extreme bodily reactions of it. So mm. for that reason, classical space and time don't really ramify. No. Normal suspense doesn't ramify. But what does emerge instead, I thought, is quite interesting and I found really watchable. I remember the first time I lo around, because this is the second time I've seen it, mm. and the first time around I was expecting straight horror and was disappointed, but with a slightly revised expectation, 
I thought there were some things that were really original that I really liked. But we'll get to that in a moment. What, mm. what, what did you think? Like, I don't think it doesn't work as straight horror. No, it think. certainly doesn't. Um, I think this is this is very much a Ryan Murphy yes. joint, a Ryan Murphy product. Um, it has all the fingerprints of a Ryan Murphy mm. series. So it has that throw everything but the kitchen sink yes. at the viewer. Absolutely. Um, I mean, the, just the, the horror tropes that it, that it cycles through on hyperspeed are just incredible. I and, mean, and the sheer quantity of narrative information here is crazy. So often you'll have, you'll have a scene and then you have another scene and the two scenes bleed into the same scene. Like, yeah. You know, we said like no space is self-contained, yeah. no shot is self-contained, yeah. no scene is self-contained. Everything accelerates and blends with everything else. Yeah. I think that's it's symptomatic in some ways. I think really, in some ways, this house is haunted by horror cliches. Yep. In some ways, I mean, I think really uh, emblematic of this is the fact the house not only has a haunted attic it has a haunted basement yep <laughs> well, how many it, californian it, houses actually have basements it doesn't just have one creepy mature age woman it has two yes that's right and ryan murphy loves his divas it has, it has the creepy maid the creepy neighbor mm. the creepy uh girl with a disability who also sees things mm. it has a haunted basement it has a haunted attic mm. it, it it is just literally like a fun house of of I suppose, horror tropes Which, in some again, ways. is sometimes the aesthetic of AHS, like Circus Freak Show. I agree with you. Can I tell you what I thought did work about it? Okay. Okay, so I thought this was... This is queer horror. And I was kind of... I was trying to think about what made the queer sensibility work so well. And this is kind of what I came up with. Like, you know, on the one hand, horror is very heteronormative, usually. It's about families. It's about hearth and home. But part of the, the kind of queer pleasure of watching horror is incredulity. You know, the incredulity at seeing things that are ridiculous or that are writ large. So it's almost like this series embeds that incredulous audience reaction in the show. Mm. So it's like the show's main register is... is oh, in, no, he did. Yeah, is incredulity. <laughs> so it's almost like the show is so fixated with reactions that beyond a certain point, it doesn't matter what the reactions are. So the no. whole show is people reacting to each other, and especially the Jessica Lange character. I mean, she does... She reminds me of Sharon Stone. Like, she has such a great smirk. Yes. Like, her whole reaction to everything is always incredulity. I also think, you know, for queer people, often incredulity is a kind of defence mechanism yeah. at the world. That's where kind of campness, cattiness yeah. comes from. So it's almost like the show embeds the camp pleasures of watching horror in horror yes. in a way that makes for a really weird viewing experience and almost at times I thought it was almost like watching reality television I mean I think reality television is very mm. incredulity focused so there's so much that happens here and it's cascades so quite so quickly it was almost like watching Big Brother Murder House I thought like yes. the, the, I, it's like the incredulity is is the key part of the aesthetic well in some ways I think really it's almost like the reaction shots of the of the characters here are really discordant in some yes. ways. Uh, for, like there's the re- a there's a classic scene, for example, where mm. they go into the attic and they discover basically a leather gimp suit. Yep. And no one like they no one reacts. Like it's like it just cuts to the next scene. Well, a, w- a way I would put it is, I think that the reaction isn't about the content; it's about the the fact of the reaction. The same way that you know when you're queer or anyone who feels a bit marginalised, like. It's not really, when you have that incredulous arch approach to the world, it's not really about any one thing. It's more of a defensive posture and a coping posture generally. So right. I, kind of, I kind of feel like the series, the reaction shots and the incredulity are not about any one reaction and not about realism. And 
are so insatiable that as you've said often something crazy will happen and will shift to the next scene immediately so it's weird the show is so focused on reaction and incredulity mm-hmm. gives you it, whiplash this show but also paradoxically it creates this weirdly heightened normality like everything's mm. incredulous but everything's normal yeah like it, everything is is quotidian and everything is strange at the same time in a way that i thought had i kind of liked it like it's it's so tipsy i mean it's like a campily heightened normality where everything is shocking, but everything is banal, which yeah. is which is reality television, right? That's yeah. a reality television vibe. I think that's right. I certainly found this banal. Yeah, I, I was. I, I actually thought I actually loathed this. Okay, right. I, I detested it. See, I thought it was awful. See, I, I went the other <laughs> way. Like I, I, I kind of agreed it didn't work as horror, but that that heightened combination of banality and incredulity. I don't know. I found it. I found myself just kind of laughing, but like, but not in a bad faith way. Just kind of loving. Well, I think the I, campiness of I, it by the end. I think what you have to say is this is definitely a horror series that's not scary. It's a drama that's not dramatic. It's a comedy that's not funny. It is a character piece where the characters are uh, paper thin. Uh, it has no suspense. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> it has it resorts to cliche at every single turn. Yeah, but it, it's so. It's so blatant in its use. I mean, I don't fully agree with that. Like, I, I did think it was funny. I did think it had moments that weren't exactly suspenseful, but that were eerie. I guess what drove it for me was a sense of absurdity that I found really addictive. And, you know, often what's what's enjoyable about horror and what's enjoyable about comedy is that sense of the absurd. Like, I mean, and not just horror. Like, you know, last night we were watching Nobody and there's a, there's a really violent scene where Bob Odenkirk beats up people on a bus. It's totally shocking. But beyond a certain point, we were laughing just because the absurdity was so contagious. I just felt for me as a, as a horror fan, I love classical suspense, but I also love the absurdity of horror. So I just felt this series kind of got that in a way is, that I found so enjoyable. The thing is, I, I like horror comedies too, but this this wasn't... I mean, yeah. if, if it's funny, it's funny inadvertently. Yeah, I don't entirely agree with that. Like when, And when I said horror comedy, it's obviously not a conventional horror comedy. I don't think it's entirely funny inadvertently. Like, like it's I think, funny because it's bad. I don't quite agree with it's that. Like Ed Wood style bad. I don't quite agree with that. Like I think it's going for... I think it is, it, it is going for... like. The absurdity is so finely pitched at times that I think it's... I mean, I thought it was intentional. Like, I feel like it's a finely pitched absurdity that at times is exhausting and times is not scary, but it's so it's so kind of insatiable and so poised at other times that, I don't know, I, I was kind of in. Like, okay. I, really, I really enjoyed it. I have to say, like, I'm, I'm quite mixed on Ryan Murphy. I do actually really like a lot of his, his series, and yep. I think he works best when his wheelhouse is is about divas in some ways. So, you know, the um, the O.J. Simpson series, American American Crime Story, the divas can be male or female yes, in I some agree. ways. And I think the way O.J. assembled yeah, that I crack agree. legal team That's a good and each of, the, each of those uh, mm. those those lawyers were so ego, ego mm. maniacal and um, they were so such divas in some ways. And I think I, I also really liked Feud, Betty and Joan, which I thought which I thought was great. And I think that was that sensibility really worked in relation mm. to that that genre, those okay. characters. But for here, I just thought this sensibility is completely misplaced when it but, comes to horror. This is like horror I go I go for atmosphere. Yeah. And I, this just had this had zero I atmosphere. guess so what I quite liked, I quite liked that misplacement or that mismatch between his sensibility and the couple. Like in any other horror film, the couple would be you know, this you know you know, bourgeois couple would be imbued with such gravitas. But 
the way he deals with them, I found really funny. Like on the one hand, they're totally absurd. On the other hand, they're totally banal. And like so much happens around them that they're kind of displaced in ways that makes them even funnier. Like all those hallucinations of like the suit with him wearing it. And look, the suit was quite funny. Yeah, I I was in. But I look, was kind of into the series. I mean, I love horror too. I guess I feel like this is not this is not quite horror, but not in a way that isn't that doesn't work for me either. Like it's it's like the camp pleasure of horror embedded in horror for something that's a bit generically ambiguous or indeterminate. But I don't know, it just kind of worked for me. I mean, in a way, you know, remember we watched American Horror Story in 1984? Mm. That didn't work as much for me. I think that was just too, that was too overtly camp in some ways. Like, I think in some ways yeah. campness has got to be slightly inadvertent in I, some ways. I, like, there's got to be some, some happenstance. I mean, I like the overt camp. I just thought in that one, the sense of absurdity was a bit less poised. But, I mean, e- even the way it ends here, I think, is so funny. Like, it ends with a strobe sequence, so just pure reaction shots. And then it ends with reprising all the main reaction shots of the film in the credit sequence. So it's... <laughs> Look, I think we're just we're coming at it from different ways. I mean, yeah. I, I totally agree it's not horror. I don't no. quite think it's horror comedy, but it is. I what found is it? it well, it's uh, it's original. It's like uh, I guess I found it original. It's... I mean, another counterpoint. Like, have you seen Scream Queens? Or Ryan I Murphy? have not. No. So that's that's a Ryan Murphy series that's going for slasher that I didn't think really worked. Like I thought that was I thought that was just going for a straight horror comedy. Whereas this, I found more mercurial. And kind of compelling. So, like, I got to say, like, I'm kind of an in. I'm curious. I found it intoxicating in in a way. But I feel I, like in some ways this was a hangover from the time when people didn't realize or didn't really know how to how to shoot horror for TV. And I think shows like The Haunting of Hill House, as imperfect as it was, had an excellent pilot. Was genuinely scary. Had great you see depthful characterization. I'm, I'm, you're going to hate this, but. I think I preferred this to Haunting of Hill House. Oh, I mean, on. I mean, I, I thought I thought Haunting of Hill House had amazing set pieces. I thought it was also really turgid in places, and I thought this is a series that that turgidity. I mean, the whole challenge of a horror series is momentum, right? Mm. And I felt like Haunting of Hill House had amazing moments and amazing stuff in the pilot, but it didn't always have momentum. Like it had like the middle episode in the funeral home was amazing. It had some amazing stuff towards the end, but I didn't think. I didn't think it, it nailed the issue of momentum. And I think this series does it in a different way, but a way that's at least equally compelling. I'd also probably disagree with the idea it's a hangover from another time. And I think this series, whatever you think of it, is iconic. And this first season is quite I just think sometimes when, critically you, regarded. when you just throw everything at it, yeah. when your series has so much momentum, mm. it kind of has no momentum. In yeah, some ways. but like, I, guess, you know, I guess it's all like... All the support characters who are warning yeah. them about the house. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, I mean, really, like it's just there's just absolutely I guess, I guess no I, mystery in this series. I guess I'd agree with that if it wasn't for the fact that <laughs> I don't it, think we fundamentally don't disagree. It's just our reaction to what's yeah, occurring but on I screen guess, you is know, quite. I, I agree. Like on the one hand, polar opposite. On the one hand, yes, no, no momentum is the same as too much. But the momentum here is so crazy that I think it takes on. I mean, the momentum is the show. Like, it's so crazy, it takes on a kind of inane, absurd life of its own. Yeah, like it's, it's certainly inane and which, absurd. Which I... I don't know. I'm, I'm a horror fan. I love I horror series. I love horror series. I love <laughs> I horror comedy. Too. I just thought this was... I, I love every genre of, of horror, except for this. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I... I I, I, I guess yeah, we could we could talk in circles around the whole time. I guess just for me, it it wasn't quite horror. It wasn't quite horror comedy. It was something other. I don't think it really works in say Scream Queens, where Ryan Murphy's going for straight horror comedy. 
I'm not sure it worked at the other end of the American Horror Story franchise with 1984, but here it, I was kind of transfixed. I just <laughs> say, yeah, but move, move, moving on, and now I'm a little bit tempted to keep on doing American Horror Story for, for Archive Corner because this is going to be really fun. This is going to be, we're, going to, we're going to go through every every pilot, baby. Yeah, I, I found that quite a tough watch. I'll yeah, be right. Honest. Okay, um, um, but what, what have you what have you got coming up in the wheelhouse for next so week? I, so I was I, I was sort of on the fence here. So I thought. I've never seen this series, okay. and I, I have a, I'm not sure whether you've seen it or not, but okay. I really want to visit it and want to see what it's like in okay. some ways. Yeah, so great, the curiosity archive, that's the best, right. the best kind. It's, it's a show I've been, I've been very curious about uh, for a long time. Uh, uh, it seems like a show that it was cancelled well before it really had a chance to, uh-huh. to take flight, mm. but it seems like a sort of interesting series in the vein of those conspiracy-minded movies, mm. like uh, LA-based movies, for example, like... Um, under the Silver Lake and mm. uh, Inherent Vice, cool. and it is uh, Lodge Forty Nine. Fantastic! I, I've never seen it. Oh, fantastic! And I'm okay. really curious to see it. Great. Okay. This is good. This is one of the nice things about the Archive Corner, like revisiting f- series that we missed recent ones, like the last five years or so, mm. but also revisiting them together. That's right. So that's good. That's, that's right. a good call. Yeah. So excellent. I don't know a lot about it. I, I just know that it's it's in that same sort of vein. All I know is apparently it's very influenced by American Horror Story. <laughs> it has a very similar vibe to American yeah, Horror Story. Yeah, I don't know about that. I think, you, I think, I think you're just, just going to love it. You're going to love it. <laughs> don't hit me with any more of those, please. Um, uh, you, baby, you got, you got you got eight American Horror Story pilots coming. They all count. They all count. <laughs> So, yeah, so Lodge 49. Cool. Sounds week. good. So Lodge 49 for episode 33. That was an awkward link. They're just, <laughs> they're just numbers. Um, cool. See you next week. I'm Billy. I'm Drew. That was Pilot Club. <laughs>